You know why you're on trial here? It was until I saw that. Martin's dead. Bobby's dead. Jesus is dead. They tried it peacefully. We gonna try something else. Rebels without a job. They're a threat to national security. This revolution, we may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Get out of the street! Get out of the street! When you came to Chicago, were you hoping to draw the police into a confrontation? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rookrout. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we have a quasi-political podcast. We'll be talking about The Trial of the Chicago 7, which was just released last Friday on Netflix. And then we'll be discussing The Great Dictator, which is having its 80th anniversary this month. So let's start with The Trial of the Chicago 7. As Nick mentioned, this movie just came out on Netflix. I'm guessing that a lot of people are interested in watching this or have already seen it. We will be spoiling the film. So if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out before listening to this. But it's also based on historical events, so you can look them up on Wikipedia as well. (laughs) Right. So if you know what happens, it's not really a spoiler. But it is interesting how the film plays out and then like the ending and how they kind of sum things up. Definitely. So The Trial of the Chicago 7 is a story of seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. This film is a true ensemble film written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, has a big cast of, I think, a lot of really great performances. So the people who play the seven, actually eight, um, we'll talk about the difference there and why that's important. But those people are Abby Hoffman, played by Sasha Baron Cohen, Tom Hayden, played by Eddie Redmayne, Jerry Rubin, played by Jeremy Strong, David Dellinger, played by John Carroll Lynch, Rennie Davis, played by Alex Sharp, Lee Weiner, played by Noah Robbins, John Freund, played by Daniel Flaherty, and, of course, Bobby Seale, played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen. Generally, did you like this movie? What did you think of it? I really liked it. I am happy to play into Sorkin's screenwriting, though, which is always just fun. And yes, it can be wacky and a little outlandish, but... It tells the history from articles I've read about what actually happened. It seemed pretty close to the actual trial and then the protests outside in Chicago. I think there are some minor issues that I have with it, but I was willing to bypass those because it is such an enthralling story. And I think from the minute it starts, he has this like really cool intro that gets you into the mindset and the history of what's happening. And then as the drama unfolds, you like want to keep playing along and figuring things out. So I think it was framed well. I enjoyed it. Did you? Yeah, I actually really liked it. I was like kind of embarrassed by that because part of me wanted to be stubborn and like not like it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, I definitely have some nitpicks with it that we can get into, but I thought it was really successful and effective as a Netflix movie. I think that it's really entertaining. You can just throw it on. And I think even though it has a two hour plus runtime, it moved really quickly for me. And I love courtroom dramas, but a lot of them feel very long winded to me. Sorkin definitely benefited here from the way that the film was edited that incorporated the courtroom scenes throughout the film. So from start to finish and would jump back to events that influenced certain scenes in the courtroom. I think, again, this is a movie that is going to just really entertain people, whether you like Sorkin or not. I thought it was a lot of fun and I think an important subject matter for right now. Whether or not I think that he was maybe the right director to do that is another story. Well, what's interesting about that is that this has kind of been in the works for a really long time and Spielberg was once slated to direct and kind of got off the rails with the 2007 writer's strike. Mm -hmm. And that to me, I, I could totally see him directing it. Yeah. And did you see this, that he wanted Heath Ledger to play Tom Hayden and they were supposed to have a meeting and he died the day before oh, the meeting? Oh my God. No, I Isn't did not nuts? know that. That's crazy and really sad. Thank you, IMDb trivia. Wow. But like shocking. I'm like floored. I can't, I don't even know what to say. And we can talk about Eddie too. Yeah. But Let's just go right into the ensemble. So apart from the seven or eight, we have the lawyers. So with the prosecution, we have Richard Schultz, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and then the defendants, mainly William Kunstler, who was played by Mark Rylance. And then the infamous judge, Julius Hoffman, played by Frank Langella. And then we do have a surprise appearance by Michael Keaton later on, which I screamed. so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited every time, every time he appears in a movie. <laughs> and he did have this like good man aura about him. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, thank God we have a turning point here. I know. That was one of those like very cheesy, syrupy Sorkin editions, but I was glad that it happened because it was Michael Keaton. <laughs> so who from this cast stood out to you? Who was your favorite or maybe a few of your favorites in the ensemble? I think Yaya was the most outstanding. Like what he had to endure and portray on screen was so infuriating. Mm -hmm. So I think he is like the most deserving. And then I think Eddie Redmayne did a really good job. Even Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but I don't know. He's... Uh. <laughs> I had a huge problem with Jeremy Strong's accent. Oh my God. It was so distracting. And I saw a tweet about how like everybody did an accent and the one American like was the one who sounded off. <laughs> like... Yeah. So as listeners know, I'm a huge Jeremy Strong fan. Like I love him in succession, <laughs> but the accent was tough. And I know that his role was kind of more of the comic relief, but at the same time, I was just a little taken aback by it. But I've heard some critics saying it was great, that he had a wonderful performance. I think he, he had a good performance, but the accent was not what I was expecting. It almost sounded like a little bit of like a stoned Kendall Roy the whole time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Sasha was also the comedic relief, and I think mm -hmm. he did a better job. His accent was also very unique. 
being this like Boston Californian. Definitely, if I had to pick a couple, Yaya Abdul Mateen, he was the standout performance for me too. The sequence that is just, I think, extraordinary where he's bound and gagged in the courtroom was just horrific. And Crazy. he did an incredible job. I'll talk more later about what I think will happen with the Oscars because I'm not sure if it's going to go that way. Mm -hmm. We'll see. But the other performance that I thought was good, I normally don't love Sasha Baron Cohen. There isn't really anything that draws me to him, but I thought Mm -hmm. that he did an excellent job. And also Mark Rylance, I thought he was great. He was great. He's always, I think, someone that the Academy really loves. If we remember, he won for Bridge of Spies in kind of a surprise Mm -hmm. win. So I wouldn't be shocked if he got nominated too. But one thing I will say about Eddie Redmayne, I've just never really clicked with him, but I think that Mm -hmm. for Tom Hayden and specifically the way that Sorkin wanted to portray Tom Hayden as this kind of clean cut deliverer of pointed monologues and that opposition to Abby Hoffman, I thought that they played really well off of each other Mm -hmm. and it worked for him. They each have their own roles. So really Abby and Jerry are together and then Tom Hayden is this like more of the spark. I mean, we find out that they want to pin everything on him because he kind of incited things by what he said. And his inability to use pronouns was kind of a weird plot point. And then the other character that I wanted to make a note of was John Carroll Lynch, who we have the <laughs> Zodiac Killer playing this pacifist mm-hmm. defendant who ends up punching the policeman and he's surprised and I think some of the reaction shots to the family were a bit dramatic but it's just funny to see him in any other role I think no I totally agree he's a literal boy scout he's I mean we've seen him mostly as a character actor over the years but I will always think of him as the zodiac killer (laughs) so anytime I see him I'm just like oh so what did you do that made this go wrong for everyone I would say he isn't like one of the standouts he doesn't have as much to do and we do have to mention Frank Langella because I'm just going to get this out of the way now. I will not be shocked in the slightest if he's the one who gets the awards love. I know. And that's what I'm scared of because Yaya should 100% be nominated. But then, you know, they'll be like, oh, and here's Frank Langella for his for his time award mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. And this is not the role we need to be supporting either. He's amazing in the role. The role is a tough one. He's just this almost over-the-top villain. I think that Sorkin really played with that. But that character is the most vile character I've seen in a movie in 2020. But that's how the actual judge was, which is insane that he was so blatant about his Mm -hmm. disdain for these defendants. And I mean, watching the scene with Michael Keaton on the stand and he won't let the jury in because, you know, he says it doesn't relate. And hearing him say that, you know, they didn't find any conspiracy among Mm -hmm. the seven. And he's like, no, it doesn't matter. Oh, it was just... (laughs) It was so hard to watch. So hard to watch. I was screaming at the TV... He was horrible. And I think, too, if we're thinking about, like, the comparisons to the people in real life, he is the closest, pretty much. Like, in some of the other characters, I think Sorkin makes unique choices that I don't quite understand all the time to portray them in certain ways and the lines of dialogue that they have, even though I think he did go off of court transcripts quite a bit. But 
that character is the one where you're just like, oh, this person actually was that awful. <laughs> but I think, yeah, Franklin Jell has never won before. Yeah. And yeah, I just, I see it as an easy one for them. So we have three Academy Award winners. We have Aaron Sorkin, Eddie Redmayne, and Mark Rylance. And then we have three nominees, Michael Keaton, Frank Langella, and Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh, for Borat. Apart from actor nominations, what else do you think could or will get nominated? So I do think that the acting, that's going to take up most of the nominations for this one. I think an easy one and potentially a winner is actually Best Original Song. So there's an original song that plays in the credits by Celeste called Hear My Voice. It's the one that starts playing like at the very end. And that to Mm. me is just like an easy, that category is so thin this year, I feel. Yeah. That that's one where they'll be like, here we go. Just another (laughs) one. (laughs) I think that screenplay, this is a screenplay that actually we can get into some quotes, but one of the quotes that made me groan, like actually just groan, was when... One of the characters says, this is the Academy Awards of protests. And as far as I'm concerned, it's an honor just to be nominated. And those (laughs) Academy members will just see that as bait and just be like, yep, laugh, you know, great. So I think it's more likely to get screenplay than to get director. I'm not sure if Sorkin will get in there, um, considering the year that we'll have, though. Who knows? The other shoe-in award, for sure, I think is SAG Ensemble. Okay. Yeah, I definitely see that. Kind of as a follow-up to Parasite, I could definitely see this winning. Mm-hmm. It seems easy. It's a true ensemble cast. I think director will be close. He'll kind of be that potentially sixth spot, mm-hmm. kind of fighting with whoever's left over. So that'll be interesting to see play out. And I think even potentially Eddie Redmayne as like a dark horse, mm-hmm. but... Seeing as there are so many A-list celebrities in this mm-hmm. movie, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Especially if they end up nominating two and splitting the vote. That's just going to muddle things mm-hmm. as well. So they're going to have to be strategic. Who they run yeah. and where. Yeah. I was thinking about that because I could also see Eddie Redmayne happening. The big one I'm curious about is if Sasha Baron Cohen will be run as lead. I think it could be category fraud, honestly, if he's supporting. I think that he has the most to do in the showiest performance. I think that if we're thinking supporting, my two that I think they would do would be Yaya and Frank Langella. I'm still like just, I'm too stuck on that Frank Langella one. Yeah. <laughs> to envision no, it another way. I feel. Yeah. That's... The thing about Eddie Redmayne, though, that I do want to share. So, Eddie Redmayne plays Tom Hayden. Do you know who Tom Hayden was married to in real life? <laughs> no. The Jane Fonda. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow, go Jane. Yeah, she's a... Go Tom. Such a big activist. Yeah, true. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know what she thinks. Like, (laughs) how did he do as Tom Hayden? But I think that says right there, like, you know, you have this very specific group of, I mean, they're boomers, but Academy voters who are older, who lived through the 60s. And I think they're going to watch this movie and be like, yeah, like the 60s were important. Not that much has changed, but look what we did back then. And I think it's just going to be an an easy vote for a lot of them. And I think Tom Hayden, that's an easy one to recognize, especially with how Sorkin chooses to portray him here. Because he's not kind to him, but the way that his arc is, it is really that heroic trajectory. Again, we're going to spoil, but at the very end, he's the one who, you know, he hasn't been 
as defiant as the others throughout. He's been much more like, we have to follow the rules of the system. He shares that if you don't win elections, nothing matters. He's kind of the foil to Sasha Baron Cohen's Abby Hoffman. But at the end, he's the one who, as an act of defiance, reads the names of all Mm -hmm. of the men who've died in Vietnam since the trial started. It's a big Oscar moment. I definitely agree because I think Sorkin kind of falters between making him a good and kind of a bad guy, not necessarily a villain Mm -hmm. at all, but he's not always on steady ground. And what's interesting is that during the film, he's the only one who stands after they've all decided that they're not going to stand for the judge when he leaves the courtroom. And then he stands and then, you know, later on at Ramsey's house, the maid approaches him and says, oh, you were the only one who stood and supported him. And he was like, no, it was a reflex. But in actuality, he was the only one who actively defied the judge in supporting Bobby. And he was charged with contempt of court for that, which is interesting that either Sorkin didn't comply with the reality here or that he changed it. And I'm not sure why. Yeah, so we hinted earlier like there were just some interesting choices that Sorkin made that I think really showed his hand in a way that I wasn't a fan of, I guess. We both shared that Yaya's performance as Bobby Seale was the one that stood out to us. And I think that the sequences with him were the most impactful to me as a viewer, especially right now. People are calling this film very timely and his scenes were what made it that for me. But that's as far as Sorkin really goes with it. It's almost like he knew he had to touch on this and then he was like, okay, now I'm going to focus on what I really want to focus on, which is this clash between two different types of white liberals. You have the one, you know, who thinks that you change systems from within and who thinks that you have to follow the rules in order to get what you want. And then you have the other side who is just burn it all down, dismantle everything, you know, people get hurt in revolutions. You have those two sides. And I think that he's more interested in interrogating that as opposed to going into what I found to be the more fascinating part of the story, which is how the attorney general used Bobby Seale and the Black Panther Party to instill fear in people and to scare the jury and to make this group of white liberals look scarier. That to me is a a sharper look at what's going on right now and what was happening back then. That's what tells you that nothing has changed. And that, to me, was what I Mm -hmm. wanted him to dive into. Those are all the conversations we're having right now. I mean, at dinner last night, that's exactly what we were discussing. And I think it's very convoluted. And I think, you know, these conversations need to happen. But it's infuriating when, you know, people don't play by the rules, so to speak. And you have this judge who is actively defying the law and people's human rights for you know, a lawyer in the case of Bobby Seale. And I think if anything, it's a great conversation piece for the moment we're in for being two weeks until election day. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sorkin has always been this more liberal writer in person. So it's tough because, I mean, I really hope everybody watches this. And for those that don't agree with this side, I hope they don't like just shut the movie off because, you know, it's kind of too much. I don't know. I felt that It wasn't too in your face, but I think it's very apparent what he's trying to do. I think what Sorkin does here that a lot of viewers will respond to is that he deals with issues that we're facing right now politically still, corrupt institutions, racism, 
protests, freedom of speech, but he's doing the most Sorkin thing possible with them, which is that he's telling you, I think, that his belief is that, and you know, it might be a little too sugary and sweet for me, but it's that goodness and words will solve everything and will make things better. That's an uplifting tone when everything is really horrible right now. And I think that that's something Mm -hmm. that viewers will connect with. And I think why I feel sticky on the politics of it. He connects with here the fact that with COVID, we've lost a lot of lives and that to the Vietnam War, we also lost a lot of lives. And as you said, that's how He ends the film with naming all of the people who have died since the trial had started, which was, I think, like five months. That made me tear up. Oh, yeah. It was such an emotional ending. And side note, I really wanted to see this in a theater because you know, like the entire crowd would have been cheering and Uh clapping. And like, I miss those Mm -hmm. moments. Me too. (laughs) But he makes these connections to present day. And I think that's important, too. Because it, it'll just help connect people with, again, what's happening now, but also to see what happened in the past as a connection to the problems we're still facing in just a different way. Since this is a Sorkin script, what were some of your favorite quotes? <laughs> or ones that just made you say, no, thank you? This one made me laugh. And by this point, I was already not a fan of Jeremy Strong's accent. But I think by this time, he was upset that the woman who is sent undercover to get intel from him. But he goes, you don't send a woman to ensource of me. <laughs> that was pretty <laughs> oh good. My God. <laughs> I was like, I need to practice this. I did not practice. No, that, that was pretty good. <laughs> just this crazy voice saying ensorcel. Like what? And then he had to define what ensorcel meant when he said it. <laughs> that one was a lot. <laughs> That was my worst quote from the movie, I think. Mine? So I have I have a few. So one that I really liked, I, that just made me laugh, that will probably stand out to no one else, but except for you and other Ohio people, is when they say, anyone mm-hmm. know what a Buckeye is? A nut, a poisonous nut. And we are, you know, as Ohio yeah. State graduates. It was just an odd placement. Strange. Like they're in the bar and they're like, the Buckeye State. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I don't know what the nut has to do with like anything. The other one I didn't really love was when Abby Hoffman says, I think that institutions of our democracy are wonderful things that right now are populated by some terrible people. That character would never say that. He hates every institution. (laughs) The other really strong moments for me, which in no way he Mm -hmm. crafted, but like his inclusion of the protest chants Mm -hmm. and kind of the unifying sound of the crowd in the park and then Mm -hmm. through the marches, I think were, I mean, they were electrifying. Hearing whose streets are streets after, you know, I had marched Mm -hmm. with friends earlier this summer for BLM protests was just like, wow, that, you know, this was happening and this happens and sparks change and revolution. And then at the very end in a very emotional way, but the movie cuts to black and you hear this crowd go, the whole world is watching, which is again, what they were chanting back then. And it brings it back to this, this trial happened and it's still very important and known as one of the most odd trials in Mm -hmm. history. And this is the moment we're watching and that was the moment they were watching and I think that was just very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely a little sorkin and corny, but I think that it's an important message to end the film on because the whole world is watching us. I mean, back then history remembers and right now people are looking to us and seeing how we're behaving and 
what we're doing in the face of adversity, how we're responding right now. And I think that it's important to think about those things. The whole world is watching. Also, maybe watching this movie on Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) What'll happen when Mank comes out? So I did want to talk about this a little bit. I think the fact that it's such a political movie, I think could divide voting members. So my question to you is going to be like, do you think it's too political where it could hurt itself in like a best picture win? Or do you think that's a good thing to help it? It's very sentimental. And I think that Sorkin's telling of the subject, while political, is very palatable. It's not controversial. And I think that that is a big deal. And if we're thinking, too, with how people would vote with a preferential ballot, I can't see a lot of people ranking this that low. What about you? I think, and it pains me to say this, I think it has a better chance at picture than Nomadland, Mm. just because of the subject matter, but also because Nomadland, to me, just isn't a film that voting members are going to pick for their top Mm -hmm. slot it's a beautiful film and you know i hope we talk about it Mm -hmm. at some point on the pod but you asked about mank and i think it really comes down to how mank is and i still think mank could win picture i do too i mean they're both nostalgia picks with real people i think it's down to those two so my my vote right now is going to be mank for picture chloe zhao for director that's my push Oh, if you had to pick or if you had to vote. Well, I haven't seen Mank, so I guess I couldn't say I would vote that way, but yeah. I would predict that. Nomadland's my favorite movie that I've seen this year. I'm wondering if it's too quiet. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the like quote unquote problem of it, but that's also why I love it so much. Oh, me too. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I can't wait to talk about <laughs> it one day on here. If you had to give Trial of Chicago 7 one Oscar, what would you give it? Oh, I would go Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I would too. He would be my pick. He's a standout performance and I don't think I would go technical on it. I think it's an acting heavy movie and if it wins awards, that's where it should win them. I always give this to screenplay and I wouldn't give this to screenplay here. No, me either. So overall, I really liked The Trial of Chicago 7, even though I clearly have like some problems and nitpicks with it. But I think this is a really enjoyable movie. I agree. I liked it. It's not a perfect movie, but I think it's perfect for the time and summarizing this moment in history, relating it to the present one. And I think critics and audiences agree. So far, it's done very well. It has a 94% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes and then 92 amongst audience. So I recommend it. It's easy to watch. And I think one of Netflix's strongest contenders for awards. This will not be the last time that we're talking about it. We can pretty much guarantee that. Now we have a new segment called Wild For It. And what we're going to do is we're going to briefly mention something that we've just watched that we really loved, but that we don't think we're going to like have enough time to dedicate a podcast episode to or be able to talk about in depth at another time. My thing that I'm wild for is David Byrne's American Utopia, which I watched as part of New York Film Festival, directed by Spike Lee. It actually comes out on HBO Max today, our day of recording. So by the time you hear this episode, it'll already be out. If you love The Talking Heads, which I do, it was just so much fun. And what Spike Lee does really well here in this concert film format is show the communal aspect of 
concert going and of live music, it makes you want to be in a crowd to see live music again. And when that's something you can't do right now, it makes you long for that. But also I think David Byrne is just this wholly original creator who makes beautiful music, but also talks about really timely issues like the importance of voting and civic engagement. And I highly recommend it. I knew when it was on Broadway and it still from the movie trailer looks like very abstract and I'm not really sure what to expect. It is. It's a, it is abstract. And I, <laughs> he's a, he's a okay. strange duck. And I don't really know about David Byrne. I don't know the talking heads. So it's all very like in this realm where I would go to a show very blind and just kind of live in the moment. So yeah. I'll, I'll have to watch that. So my film I'm going to talk about is Wolf Walkers, which I just saw yesterday as part of the AFI Fest. It will be released on December 11th on Apple TV+. It's directed by Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. So Ross has been art director on Tom Moore's films before, and his films include The Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea, The Breadwinner. The animation of these films are just incredible. They are so intricate, and the landscapes that he creates, they're bound really with like Vikings and or Irish culture and nature. So they're very vibrant. The stories are a little darker than like Disney Pixar, which always wins the Academy Award. Mm-hmm. When I saw Secret of Kells, that like totally changed me with animation. So I highly recommend any of his films. This one is a crowd pleaser. It's cute. It's a great story. It is like a family film. Kids can enjoy it, but I think it's really good for adults too. It's about this town in Ireland who is sequestered and outside. Essentially, they're trying to get rid of all the wolves in the forest. But among the wolves are these people called the wolf walkers. And the young girl who is the daughter of this hunter befriends this young girl who's a wolf walker and eventually becomes a wolf walker herself and gets swept up in this drama of trying to save the wolves and these friends that she's made and also to communicating that to the lord and the people of the community who just want to burn down the forest and it's again very political in itself i mean it starts out where they're cutting down this forest and you know contributing to climate change and you know all these problems we have today with deforestation so i highly recommend it I think it's a beautiful film. It's going to be a great December watch. And I think as Disney Plus takes over, I think we need to support Apple TV Plus here and watch this movie because it is truly for everyone. I have no interest in supporting (laughs) Disney as a corporation, so I'm all for this. We haven't talked about their recent (laughs) endeavor to cut from theaters, but if you want to elaborate, you can. (laughs) Sure. First, what I will say before that is that I'm really excited to see Wolfwalkers. It looks more quirky and like it would be Mm -hmm. darker, which I really appreciate when films kind of can appeal to both. So I'm very excited to see this in December when it comes out. I will be rooting for this at the Oscars. It's definitely going to be nominated. I know Soul will be out too. And Mm -hmm. I'm always rooting for either Laika or here it's like a mix of G-Kids and Cartoon Saloon. So I think we'll see this will be the big animated fight between Soul and Wolfwalkers. I think so too. So a little bit about Disney, what they did, just why I'm a little angry. (laughs) 
why I would spend my dollars elsewhere. They said, our creative teams will concentrate on what they do best, making world-class franchise-based content, while our newly centralized global distribution team will focus on delivering and monetizing that content in the most optimal way across all platforms. In saying this, they're focusing totally on streaming, not on theaters. Even though they have so much money, they just have no incentive apparently to save the theatrical experience after, quite frankly, running it into the ground and taking it away from independent movies. So I'd rather support independent films, film festivals, rather do that before I give any of my dollars to Disney. (laughs) End of rant. And not like Apple isn't a corporation, but this is just a much more interesting choice here. And Disney has no interest in supporting the theatrical experience. And so I don't have interest in that. Which is sad because that's like absolutely what we need right now is to save those spaces for movies because... I've watched so many movies at home and I just am fighting distractions so, so hard. It. And I miss the theaters once they're safe. You know, I hope we can all go back, you know, and I hope some survive and well, it'll kind of work yeah. back. But I just didn't see why they had to make such a statement about this. I mean, release Soul mm-hmm. wherever it can be released and don't just limit it to streaming. Or if you want to limit it to streaming because that's what's safe right now in the pandemic, don't make this statement about how you're just across the board no longer right. going to care about right. this. I mean, I think it was motivated from numbers from Hamilton and Mulan coming into their platform. And I think they just want to keep mm-hmm. capitalizing on that. And For sure. yeah, I think that motivation is wrong. It's just like we said in our Disney episode, like they make these remakes for money. Everything they do is for money and they have plenty of it. Let's move on. <laughs> this is all you. Okay. Talk about The Great Dictator. Okay, I am such a big Charlie Chaplin fan. I was mad when Ikea discontinued their poster of Charlie Chaplin, and I never got one. So, (laughs) so dumb. What? So, The Great Dictator was Charlie Chaplin's midpoint in his career, and it actually ended up being his biggest box office success. It was the second biggest film of 1940 behind Boomtown. So the film was originally released October 15th, 1940. So we're just past the 80th anniversary mark for the film. It's about this dictator, Adnoid Hinkle, who tries to expand his empire while a poor Jewish barber tries to avoid persecution from Hinkle's regime. Long story short, Charlie Chaplin plays both of those characters, Adnoid Hinkle, who is a caricature of Hitler, and then the Jewish barber. So he looks similar, and then in the end, they kind of get switched up, and we can talk about that in a bit. You hadn't seen this before, but you Mm -mm. said you liked it. Expand on that. I did really like it. I think that the commentary surrounding the production and all of the choices that Mm -hmm. went into the film make it even better and more interesting. There were a couple of scenes that I was just unexpectedly moved by. We can talk about the specifics around those, but I think that this is a fascinating historical document, and I will get into my thoughts about Charlie Chaplin, but I want to ask you first, like, what about Charlie Chaplin makes you love him so much? There's just such charm in everything that he's made, and even his short films. I mean, he has The Circus, The Kid, The Gold Rush. I'm not as much of a fan of you know, his big hits, Modern Times and City Lights, but they're still wonderful films. And I Mm -hmm. think 
his slapstick humor as this tramp character is just always fascinating. I mean, I was laughing when I rewatched this for the pod and that doesn't always happen when you know something's about to happen. And I think what he does and what a lot of silent cinema did at the time is wanting audiences to feel good and to make them laugh. And he hadn't really mixed drama with comedy before. And I think he did it so, so well here. I mean, there could have been some flops Mm -hmm. throughout, but I think overall he did an amazing job with tackling World War II and Hitler's persecution of Jews with his typical humor. And then getting to kind of why I like this movie so much is that, again, relating this to Trial of the Chicago 7 and how it captured this moment in history. And we can still look back on this and relate to it today, which is absolutely crazy. So in terms of Oscars, this film was nominated for Best Picture, Lead in Supporting Actor, Original Screenplay, and Original Score. It didn't win any, and Charlie Chaplin, kind of like Alfred Hitchcock, has just an unfortunate history with the Academy. He did end up receiving two honorary Oscars in his lifetime, and one came after he was actually blacklisted from the U.S. because he was charged with being a communist so he couldn't be in the u.s for many years and then when he was finally allowed back they invited him to the oscars so it's sad that this film didn't win anything so i do have to say if i'm looking historically back rebecca won best picture that year which is my favorite (laughs) hitchcock (laughs) that's fair so i don't think i would correct that one and jimmy stewart won for the philadelphia story for actor director went to john ford for the grapes of wrath okay these are all big movies All big names, for sure. And, like, the Best Picture nominees from this year, we have Rebecca, which won All This in Heaven 2, Foreign Correspondent, The Grapes of Wrath, The Great Dictator, Kitty Foyle, The Letter, The Long Voyage Home, Our Town, and The Philadelphia Story. Wow. I mean, this is just an unfortunate year for him to be nominated, to be honest, (laughs) because... So Best Original Screenplay went to The Great McGinty, and Preston Sturges is, like, one of my favorite writers of all time. I also listened to the commentary for this on the Criterion Blu-ray, which was fascinating, not only to learn about Chaplin, but talking about the film and how they made it and cranking the film, which speeds the film up to make it look more comical. I learned so much watching the Criterion commentary because, so I have a confession I don't want to make you sad but Charlie Chaplin just like doesn't do it for me (laughs) why I think that people have a hard time connecting and engaging with him is that his ego is so big and all over everything so like he's the star of his films he's writing them he's directing them like it's very clear that it's totally his thing and I think if you don't buy into all of that it's harder right if if it's not for you it's almost all lost because there isn't another voice in there John Steinbeck like helped him write the final speech and he ended up cutting out everything he suggested and just going with his own thing and I think you can see that throughout his stuff and like for me as someone who like doesn't love slapstick humor who doesn't find him as endearing I think as other people do all the time I think a lot of it is from like stories that I've heard of Hollywood of women at the time so I think that can be a barrier for people but that's also I think what makes his film so great to the people Mm -hmm. who love him is that it's it's his thing I think that's why is because I appreciate not just the artistic control over everything but him manifesting all of this through so many pictures and again this is 80 years ago where you know film was just very different we were just getting into color 
And I think attitudes towards what people wanted from film were beginning to change as, like you said, we have the Philadelphia story or Rebecca. And I think I also like this because it makes me think back to a different time of basically silent cinema where, you know, this is what people were watching and enjoying. And I think mostly it's still enjoyable today. So my favorite scene, though, in the entire movie is when when he takes the mm-hmm. globe and it's a balloon and he starts playing with it. And it's just this like very beautiful scene. And it's almost like a dance sequence in a way. And then it pops because he just keeps mm-hmm. playing with it. And I thought that was, again, just so beautiful the way that the scene was choreographed, but then so scary because when you really think about it deep down, it's like, oh, this dictator character, right, is playing with the world, Mm -hmm. literally. And that's what dictators do. That is what makes the satire and the comedy so on point in that scene. Yeah. And at the end, when it pops, he turns around and cries on his desk like a little baby because, you know, he doesn't get what he wants. And that entire scene was entirely planned out beforehand it wasn't like an improv thing so all of the movements are choreographed and i that's impressive to me too i think this plays along well with other parts of the movie where these inventors come in with ideas and for one example there's a bulletproof suit and then the other one is a parachute hat and so he shoots the first guy with the suit and he dies and he goes oh try better next time and then the guy jumps out the window trying out this hat and he dies and hinkle just doesn't care so his entire disregard for life and of these creators is again another metaphor for his destructive path and waging war against the jewish race was just for sport basically horrible and i think too the ideas over thinking like production facts that i learned that i thought were crazy just how the movie begins shooting a week after hitler declared world war ii like the u.s wasn't even involved yet mm-hmm. when he started this project and how charlie chaplin said that hitler helped him finance the film because of the newsreel and documentary footage that he used specifically in the beginning wow. of the movie oh my god we talk about you know the filmmaker's ego in a lot of ways but this i think very much was charlie chaplin going toe-to-toe with hitler which is totally wild if you think about it And at the time, most of Americans didn't want to be involved in World War II in Europe. That was a big risk for Chaplin as well. He later stated in, I think, his memoir that, you know, had he known what was happening in concentration camps at the time, that he would never have made this movie. So the fact that it wasn't even widely known, it was so early in the war, Mm -hmm. and that Hitler had only invaded Poland just a week before this happened, that one, he like really wanted Mm -hmm. to get this film finished, but two, that not everybody knew what was going on. And the means of communication were just so different from how things are now, where, you know, we look on Twitter by the second to refresh and hear you know what's happening i also talk about how like i don't love slapstick humor that much like it's just not my style but i can appreciate its place and like i understand its importance and everything like that but i did think it was interesting in learning about this how he takes like these signature slapstick moments and turns them so like the pie in the face and throwing tomatoes and We have this sound of a frying Mm -hmm. pan hitting these cops in the head. He's like, these are mine or these are, you know, hallmarks of 
the silent film era and I'm going to turn it and make it more of a social Mm -hmm. commentary. So I think Chaplin had wavered a bit in wanting to make the film based on people's criticisms and where the world was at, but FDR actually had encouraged Chaplin to continue making the film. I mean, a lot of the film is this satire. I like how he plays with names, especially. Hitler is Hinkle. He is the ruler of this country, Tomania, and is like a German offset dialogue, but he like entirely improved the whole language. And he has a lot of speeches, which is very interesting. So it's fun to watch those happen. And then like through that, you hear like Wiener Schnitzel and sauerkraut. But Tomania actually comes from the word Tomaine, which is like a putrefying bacteria food poisoning. So the fact that he's like putting these names onto this country is also just another layer to everything. So herring and garbage. And so herring is a symbol for Herman Goering, and then garbage is for Goebbels, mm-hmm. yeah. who were commandants and then propaganda leader of actual Nazi Germany. So in learning about the history, I really enjoyed learning the actual connection between the names and how he wanted to portray what actually happened. One other fun little, I guess, production note is that his love interest in the film, her name is Hannah, and Chaplin's Mm -hmm. actual mom's name was Hannah too. So putting that in and giving her name to this character who the audience is supposed to connect with most. She is very much the emotional center of the movie I would say at least to me when I was watching it and Paulette Goddard that actress who plays her she and Charlie Chaplin were married in real life and at the time of the movie you know when I was first watching it I thought that it was going to end with his speech Mm -hmm. but I really love how it ends actually on her and on the shot of her face that's calling back to silent films but you just hear listen and that is just a very provocative and beautiful way to end the film especially since I learned on the commentary that the music matches the music in the balloon scene that we were talking about earlier. So that's a really, I think, a beautiful tie-in. Who you listen to is important and what they say is important. And yeah, it makes you think a lot about these two characters right in the film, the barber and of Hinkle, and who has the power at the end of the day. I mean, it's sad that their relationship, though, was not a good one. Well, it's Charlie Chaplin. See, I don't know his like destructive history with women from what i understand he did not treat people very well (laughs) but they ended up divorcing two years after the movie and apparently they did like take after take on the movie and he wanted her to like scrub the floors because of the character she was in the film and she said no and Mm -hmm. it doesn't sound great but the fact that he does end the film on her and not him is i think way more moving we can talk about the speech so at this point in the movie hinkle was supposed to give this rousing speech where he was about to invade this country but it just so happened he was in the wilderness and looked aloof he was alone and then at that same exact time the barber and schultz who is a big character in the film they escaped from the concentration camp and replaced their uniforms with officer uniforms so they walk in and people actually think they are hinkle and schultz and schultz has been welcomed back into the cabinet so then the barber actually gives this rousing speech you know not as an emperor he starts out i don't want to be emperor and goes into this minutes long 
long speech of really getting back to, again, Trial of the Chicago 7 and how you had mentioned that Sorkin leaves on this uplifting note, and that's what Chaplin does here. He plays on the emotion, but the hope and power of the people to rise up as a democracy and to fight together to fight evil. We can say some quotes from the speech, but what did you like most about it? Did you think it was over the top? Generally, I do think speeches like this in films are over the top, but I thought it was really beautiful. And he establishes this rapport with the audience earlier in the film when he looks into the camera. And this, I think, is the ultimate way that he does that again in this speech of you really do feel like he's talking to you. Mm -hmm. It works really well that way. You know that he's talking to this crowd that's there and what the purpose of the speech is in the movie. But I think what is interesting is at the time films during World War II had a place in the culture as, you know, being able to really impact the people and governments for the better. I think that we have a couple of cases like that. And if you think of any of William Wyler's movies, I know like Winston Churchill, when Greer Garson won her Oscar for Best Actress for Mrs. Miniver, he said that that movie was more powerful for Britain than a fleet of battleships. (laughs) Like these Mm -hmm. movies had such a big impact at the time for the war. And I think that this speech really gets that right. And I think that most of it is because of that rapport Mm -hmm. he establishes early on with the audience. This sounds bad, but you mentioned he does this before. I know Hannah has a speech where she breaks the fourth wall and speaks to the audience. And I didn't like it when she did it, but I liked it a little bit more here. Like she says, you know, I wish you would just leave us alone and let us live our lives. And I was like, oh, that's like too much. Mm -hmm. I think a huge thing too, right, is this was big for audiences back then, but it was big for me watching now. I thought, I was like, I've never heard his voice before. Yeah, this was the first time he had spoken and audiences really wanted to hear him speak and I don't think he disappointed I think he has such a powerful and moving voice well and I think that only adds to the power Mm -hmm. of the speech right is that you're waiting for this silent film star Charlie Chaplin himself to speak so you're even more likely to hang on to the words that he's sharing so the speech goes on and I could probably recite all of it and it would be very meaningful but the most impactful for me was towards the end he goes The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us fight for a decent future, a world of reason. It's rousing. Again, it just connects to present day. When you think about the problems that persist now, that were also back then, I like when he says, greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed we have developed speed but we have shut ourselves in like that idea of like greed and money being the root of Mm -hmm. all evil still and what motivates dictators and when people are extrinsically motivated what can happen and how even if you have progress humans can shut themselves in they can inhibit themselves and others from moving forward to getting true progress The last note of this speech, right, is a call for Mm -hmm. unity. In the name of democracy, let us all unite. And I think that, you know, a unifying speech right now is, it's really hard when things are so divisive and there are very clear sides and 
that's not always the easiest thing to see. But I think the fact that even back then that was the ultimate call to arms was this unity mm-hmm. speech, which candidates are still using now that we need to come together. We need to find humanity. And that's why this is so timely mm-hmm. too, 80 years later. When he says unity, he raises his fist and just kind of looks exhausted. He's tired from what's been happening and living through this moment. And I feel that and you see it in his body and in his face. And I think that's really powerful too. This movie is streaming. It's on the Criterion channel right now. And if you do have the Criterion channel, there's a whole host of videos about The Great Dictator too. So you can watch it with commentary on. I watched this beautiful little video about why Alan Cumming loves... (laughs) The Great Dictator, you can just see him just like light up talking about it. And if you search it, all these videos come up, including a documentary, which I wish I had time to watch. That's about the similarities and differences between Charlie Chaplin and Hitler Mm -hmm. and how they were very much at odds, which is super interesting, as you can imagine. The Tramp and the Dictator, is that what it's called? Yes, The Tramp and the Dictator, that's it. Yeah, I need to watch that too. So next time on Oscar Wilde, we are going to be doing another movie trade because... Robert Zemeckis's The Witches came out yesterday on HBO Max. We'll maybe spend a little bit of time talking about that, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so I'm going to give Nick What Lies Beneath. Which I have never seen, which I have always wanted to see, and I've heard good things, especially uh-huh. with Pfeiffer's comeback. So And Harrison Ford. His comeback, though? Not his comeback, but, you know, I just have to mention him. Yeah, just him. Okay. <laughs> So I'm excited for this. And then I will be giving Sophia Death Becomes Her, which is an incredible campy Halloween film as well. I can't believe I've never seen this. As you know, I adore Meryl Streep. So I'm so ready for this movie. (laughs) And Goldie Hawn and Bruce Willis and Isabel Rossellini. It's a great cast. It's such a fun movie. So yes, I think this will be really fun. And we can even talk about The Witches as an adaptation as well. Mm -hmm. Nicholas Rogue, my guy. This will be a fun pod. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. Stay safe and wear your masks. Thanks everyone. See you next time.